Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, episode number 81. Today we spoke to Tom Coyne, best-selling golf author, host of the Golfer's Journal podcast and lover of all things golf. Tom is a regular contributor to the Golfer's Journal and is the author of four of golf's most unique books, A Gentleman's Game, Paper Tiger, A Course Called Scotland and A Course Called Ireland. Much of his writing focuses on Lynx golf, a passion that was refined during his research for his Irish book, in which Tom walked the perimeter of the country while playing every Lynx course in Ireland. Tom has written for Golf Magazine, Golf Week, Sports Illustrated, and the New York Times, and appeared on many podcasts, such as No Laying Up. We talk about the Irish DNA and what makes it special for Tom. We discuss Lynx golf and the community that plays the sport in Ireland in comparison to the US. It was fascinating to hear about the journey Tom embarked on when he nearly made it pro, and the future of golf. See you here soon for a round, Tom. Hi, Tom. Thanks for coming on the show today. Where are you joining us from, Tom? Tom? Kieran, thanks so much for having me on. I'm uh, coming to you from just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, in Devon, PA, here in the States on a uh, beautiful summer, July 1st. That contrasts a lot with the weather we have here, Tom, because it's pouring rain, as is often the case in our summer here in Ireland. We're, We're speaking to you from Dublin, have to say I'm a Limerick man, and the man beside me here is a dub. We'll have to um, have to apologise to you for that. But, uh, <laughs> well, it's good to be speaking yeah. to some Irishmen for sure. Um, I'm supposed I was supposed to be over there three times this uh, summer, but y'all aren't letting us in, and I I, I don't blame you. <laughs> we are uh, we had to cancel some trips, and certainly travel has been all of it pushed back to next year. So next year I'll be back over. Maybe we can get together then. Yeah, you're not letting us into your country no, either, we're not. by the way. <laughs> they don't tell us that part. There's just enough, there's enough <laughs> weird news over here. We don't even get to that. So. so, Tom, I suppose before we get into the meat of this, we, we're really curious as to what, what draws you to Ireland. Why do you love this Emerald Isle so well, much? Well, I'll tell you. You know, I have um, Irish roots. My, both my mother and father's families come from Mayo. Um, from towns from Swinford and Foxford outside of Ballina. So that area, you know, we'd start going back to visit there when I was, you know, 13, 14 years old, um, before I was, you know, on, on what wasn't even really golf trips, which is what brings me back now. But, uh, more, it was just, you know, going to look for tombstones and, um, and, and touristy stuff. And, and I just fell in love with, uh, fell in love with it. I mean, maybe there's something in my DNA. I mean, all of it comes from Ireland that just makes me feel comfortable there. Um, uh, the beauty of the place, the people, the way we were, you know, the way you're treated, um, the genuine nature of, of people and, and the conversation. There's just so many things that I, that I do love about it. Um, Ireland itself. And then when you add the golf in, uh, true links golf which ireland has an abundance of and and something that we don't have in the united states you know ireland for me sort of sparked like links golfing love that has i've kind of made a career out of to be honest so 
I just, you know, when I go back, I just kind of exhale and feel, I feel comfortable. And, uh, I also, you know, I even like your food. Um, and I like the candy too. So there's, there's, a, there's <laughs> that's a lot of good stuff. What's the community of golf like in comparison? Like we, you know, we'd have played courses like Le Hinch and, and Doombeg and these sort of links courses and the kind of people you find on the, on those courses, Irish people, does that, how does that compare to courses that you could be playing over in the States, you know, or it could be on the PGA tour as an example. Yeah. So that's actually the thing that I probably love the most about it is the sort of people that you meet in the Irish golf community, because even at a place like a Bally Bunyan or a La Hinch or, you know, these, you know, higher end or marquee sort of names, you know, your caddy is likely to be a member at the club or, or play there, or, you know, there isn't golf in the States tends to be there's sort of a division between public golf and, and private country club golf. And there's a lot more of the, the private kind. So it can be, you know, it's attached to money and status and, and, and other things, which, which is too bad because you don't get to meet as broad a range of people, perhaps. Whereas in Ireland, it's not an ex, my experience is it's not really an exclusive thing. You know, if you, if you want to, you know, if you live in La Hinch and you want to go to the putting green and just, Hit, hit some putts and you, you, you can or you know there's there are community golf courses around ireland that are sort of hubs of the community that are not you don't have to be rich to 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 join them and play there and so that's what i really appreciate is is that irish model of like you can actually visitors are welcome here and pretty much anyone can join if you're interested in golf and i think that's just it's really refreshing and it sort of takes the stuffiness out of the experience and and that's quite nice as a as an American visiting where um, stuffiness can be part, not everywhere, but at a lot of places can be part of the experience. It's good to hear you speaking so fondly of Ireland. Was there a memory or do you remember something that happened when you're on the course when you thought to yourself, hey, that small little island ain't so bad after all? <laughs> there were so many. I mean, I think it was the first time, the first golf course, one of the first courses I played in Ireland was Enniscrone up in, you know, in Sligo, right near Mayo, and it's just showing up. Two little kids came out and carried our bags, even though I was even kind of a little kid at the point. There was such a welcome, and then there was this whole experience of where you're playing in dunes and you're playing along the sea and you're playing with negotiating wind and you're trying to hit your ball low, which is we try to do the opposite here, you know, hit these <laughs> long soaring shots, and and so you it really engaged my imagination in like a whole other way that I just felt like this game links golf is, is actually, it's almost like a different sport than what I play at home. And it was just really, really appealing because again, it's so um, imaginative and sort of mental and invigorating. That was, it was just great. But I mean, even aside from the golf, I remember on our first trip, we went to, uh, we went to a dance hall down. We were staying, we were doing this tour of like castles and staying in, all these really old places and little towns and um, with a lot of like mold and mildew and, but it was, it was the finest mold in Ireland. <laughs> and, and so, and they said, Oh, you should go down. You know, there's a, there's a dance on in the, whatever the community hall or whatever tonight, you should go down and check it out for like some real crack. Once we figured out what crack was, we were up for it. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I remember going down there and everyone was just, the welcome, the fun, people wanted to talk to us, you know, Americans don't get that treatment everywhere in the world, you know, and, uh, 
and you know all this sort of hey you know my cousin in boston and that kind of stuff uh my sisters being asked to dance with like these these old men and 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 just people were genuinely enjoying themselves and talking to one another and they knew one another and it just had there was just sort of a a local kinship and friendship between people that was just very comfortable and that i felt like i was not experiencing in my suburban kind of i'm not sure who my neighbors are life in america and uh <laughs> and i just remember thinking like i want to retire over here because the old guys over here are having fun and the old people in my country, we send off to a home and, and, and visit them on Christmas, you know? So I was like, this would be, this would be a good spot. So, uh, so and, and since then, I've just kept going back. Tom, it's really cool. Look, you do quite a few things in the fact that you, you host a podcast, yeah, right? You do a little bit of work for the Golfer's Journal, and obviously you've written a couple of books, yes. some really successful books um, for, for quite a while. How do they all complement each other? Yeah, so it's it's been a fun ride, I guess you'd call it. I mean, I got into this as a, I was trained as a fiction writer and and wanted to write a, a novel. And I'd grown up caddying and playing golf and really only knew, the only things I knew much about were writing and golf. So I, I put them together in, in that book, A Gentleman's Game, and, and that became a movie. And that was really exciting. And, you know, I'm 24, 25 at the time. It was, it was crazy. And I didn't expect, to, I'm sort of an accidental golf writer. You know, I dreamed of writing books and, and being a writer, but that book allowed me to start writing for some magazines. Um, it allowed me to have opportunities to write the next golf book and then the next golf book and the next one. I, I think hopefully over time they've become less golfy and more about people and places and some bigger ideas. You know, I think the Ireland book is, is Ireland is the star of that book. I and mean, golf is a great backdrop and, and a great, gave me a great route to discover Ireland, but but Ireland is the story in that book. Scotland in the Scotland book, the same thing. I just did America. That book's much more about you know coming to understand my own country. You know, so so golf is the thing that gives me an audience. It gives me a shelf in the bookstore. It gives me a way to market my work and to connect with the community. But even golfers don't want to read 300 pages about just oh I hit that shot and that was a great hole and then I hit another good shot and then I hit a bad shot and another bad you know no that that's boring just even saying that you know so let alone do I want to write something like that so it's just it's just a different way to tell to tell stories and and that's going back to school and and the novel I mean that's what I've been been trying to do is to is to find good stories and and tell them and, and it's fortunate that golf tends to have an abundance of them anytime you're writing about a game it's it's good because games give you beginnings, ends, challenges. Uh, so, so it's been, yeah. So I didn't plan it, but I think along the way it was like, okay, what's the next opportunity? I, I tried to say yes to everything that anyone has offered me in terms of a chance to write, like with the Golfers Journal, um, and that's turned into uh, you know a real success. And I'm just, it's an honor to be a part of that. And so, yeah, it's worked out all right. You had a pretty pretty amazing time at. Paper Tiger, and around that, when you you moved away and you, you hired a swing coach and a couple of other things, and you said you'd have a go, maybe a cracking into the PGA Tour. What was all that? What was that experience like? Yeah, that was fun. I mean, after I did um, a gentleman's game, and I tried to write more fiction for a while and write my next novel, and then realized I kind of like at that point it, everything I knew about the world was in the first book because I was twenty six years old and. I said, well, I should go out and live some more life, right? And create an experience that I can write about. There's a writer named George Plimpton who kind of famously does that, yeah. Paper Lion. And I said, well, let's go out and do something uh, that's worth reading about, you know, and what would be my dream if I could do anything as, as a 
as a golfer or as a person for me, it was, you know, take my shot at next level golf, right? You know, I was a decent amateur player. I was pretty good when I was a kid, but I hadn't, I'd kind of given it up and was doing other things. And I said, all right, what if I really committed myself and I had everything that the pros have, like how good could I get? And, and what if I had all those advantages that these kids that were like born to play golf and, and all, what if I had all the stuff that they had and had no excuses, right? Because I can hit, you know, one good golf shot. I can hit two, three, four, five, sometimes 10 around or whatever. And what if I could hit 20 or 30 or 40 or 50? You know, I, I, I had the ability and golf's funny like that. Like it, it gives you that, that hint, that tease, if you will, that there's a shot in your round where you did something just as well as the guys on TV did or the women on TV did where, you know, I can make a 30 foot putt. I can hit a five iron to five feet. I can hit, I can make a wedge spin back. I can, I was in good shape. I could hit it as far as they could at that point. That was a while ago. I can't do that anymore. But, and, and so it becomes this question of, all right, well, what if I could just do it more often, you know, and, and instead of it being the one time around. So golf kind of tricks you in that way to maybe think you're better than you are. And so I think that's one of its great draws. So I said, all right, I'm going to go out and live this dream of mine. And because, and not just for me, but for every golfer who dreams the same thing or wonders the same thing. How good could I really be if I didn't have a job or kids or whatever? And so I played for 546 days in a row, didn't take a day off, uh, you know, played on Christmas, uh, moved to Florida, got a coach, shrink, trainers, physical therapists, equipment sponsors, spent my whole book advance on, on, on doing this, and then went to qualifying schools around the world, Canada, Latin America, Australia, to test my game and see if I could play, play with the pros. So it's like, it was really like Plimpton with the, with the Detroit Lions. Like you really had to go like, for you, where, where is it about that mix between talent, maybe hard work, infrastructure, what's around you, the people around you and, and consistency, which is something that you touched on. Where is it that the, the top players in the world strike that balance to blend between those and then the aspiring amateurs like ourselves, maybe not yourself, but the two here are trying to figure out what they need to focus in on, whether they have it or not. That's the, that was the big mystery of doing this project. Like what's the difference between me and them, right? Because on the driving range, by the end of all this, I mean, I was pretty good. I was a, like plus handicap. I could hit it, you know, but what's the difference between, you know, me and the guy next to me where he's going to go out and shoot 65 and I'm going to try and break 80. And a lot of it came down to, for me, mentality and comfort in that competitive setting. My first four-day tournament was a qualifier for the Canadian tour. And I was playing against guys who had been playing four-day tournaments since they were 10. So that to be able to take your your regular game, like you're comfortable playing around with your buddies on a Saturday afternoon game where I could shoot 70 or 69 or something, and then to take that into competition where they announce your name on the first tee and everything counts and you got to count them all and there's no gimmies and there's no laughs and people are literally playing for their livelihood. Getting comfortable in that setting, getting comfortable in your tournament skin that was something I never quite mastered. There were a few moments and a few tournaments where I felt like there were some moments where I felt like I'm as good as anybody here. I can do this. And, and, I, and I had some good results and you know saw my name on some leaderboards. But 
you know, in those really elite professional events, I felt very much, there was that feeling that I couldn't shake of being the imposter, right? And which was kind of the design of the whole project that I was going to be an imposter, but I was going to crash this party and, and see how I could do. But the pressure, when you add that with sort of the pressures of competition, I, my shortcomings in my game become amplified, right? Because I'm on, because I'm uncomfortable and I'm reverting to bad habits, like things that I'd worked on for months and a, a year to sort of exercise from my game, you know, they all come rushing back because I'm not focused just on what I should be thinking about. I'm too much thinking about, am I in this person's way? Am I playing fast enough? Oh my God, am I embarrassing myself? All these sort of other thoughts, these other distractions get into your head. The tournaments when I wasn't thinking about those things because I wasn't that impressed, you know, like say a local event where I wasn't overwhelmed or too impressed by who else was there, I could just play golf. And certainly on a Saturday afternoon, I could just play golf. But for guys who do it on TV, on tour, that's their regular game, right? You know, a four-day tournament for $2 million is not that they don't feel the pressure. I'm sure that they do. But they're so accustomed to it that it's not like they're playing a different sport. And for someone like me, I would show up in these. I'd be like, whoa, this feel, I feel like I've never played golf before, you know? Switching your mindset and reframing after. So day five, four, seven, when you're sort of letting go of the run of playing in a row and you're starting to think, okay, maybe it's not for me. Was there a sense of relief or was it a sense of I missed out on something there or I could have done better? Yeah. The, the, the first day after was relief just for the fact that, well, honestly, it was actually a bit strange because it was the first day I hadn't touched a golf club in a year and a half. So there was just like a you know, it was like giving up the drink or cigarettes or something, you know, it was like, this this feels weird. And and so there was that. But then there was this relief that um, I don't have to try and prove myself on the golf course anymore. So, th- so there was a little bit of relief. But I'll tell you, it didn't take that long for that voice to come back of like, you could have been done better. You, you're better than you showed, right? And that's damn, that's golf or that's sports or that's whatever you're passionate about. That that idea that, you know, I've had that little bit of success that you get, but that you don't get every time. It just keeps coming. It keeps bringing you back to think this is going to be the day when I am going to get get it all right, when the shots are going to get right. Like, I, you know, I played okay yesterday. I'm playing tomorrow and I can't wait for the first tee because that tomorrow could be the day when the shots go right. And, you know, obviously you got to put a lot of practice and work into helping them go right. But if you're doing that, there is that, that hope and that optimism. I mean, just even in the golf swing is like this act of hope and faith. Like you stand over the ball and you think like, I'm about to do something awesome. I'm going to, with a, with an iron stick, I'm going to make this ball go within 10 feet of my target. That's like, that's preposterous when you think about it. And then, but the idea that you might accomplish that is uh is an act of faith and then when sometimes you do it's pretty miraculous so that got back into me pretty quickly and i and i started playing you know local competitive golf still having my struggles having some successes and then i did a book called a course called scotland where i actually at the end of it i try to qualify for the british open so or the open championship i should say and so i wasn't quite with paper tiger i wasn't totally finished with trying to figure out find my best golf 
you know, trying to wrestle the Clara jug back from a certain Shane Lowry. Ah, uh, well, it's um, good that he has, at least. <laughs> that was fun. I was there on the last day. Tom, r- golf has come on massively in the last 20, 30 years in terms of popularity, in terms of reach, in terms of young players playing, shaft development, um, what everything's made, balls, you name it, courses, driving range, accessibility. Where, where do you see the game going? Like in the next 10, 15, 20 years, I've got a three-year-old at home. He has a couple of plastic clubs. He has a little putter. What do you, what's, what's the complexion of the game going to look like when he's 20? Yeah, great question. I mean, because so much has changed pretty quickly. You know, everything, and because I grew up, I'm, I'm Tiger Woods' age. So growing up playing junior golf pre-Tiger, before he was really on the scene, it was a very different kind of feeling thing. And you kind of, at least in America, like you only played if you were a caddy or your dad belonged to a club or something. And so there weren't that many, you know, not, it wasn't always the best athletes playing golf either. And then suddenly golf is cool, right? Cause a tiger and now you have great athletes playing golf. And so, and that, you know, that changes everything about the sport. I mean, it's become, we've seen it become so much more about physical conditioning, about athleticism, the advancements of the, in technology absolutely have had, you know, some impact as well. So it's, it's, there was a boom in popularity, then it pulled back a little bit. I think just maybe for a general oversupply of of golf courses after the Tiger boom and economic stuff as well. So you know, where does it go from here? I mean, a lot of it depends on it, it, golf is a game that is definitely depends on economic conditions uh, for for it to really thrive. Unfortunately, you know, at least here it's tied it's tied to that to some regard. But there is this opportunity right now with the pandemic, at least it's happening here where golf is having um, just in the last, say, two months, an explosion in popularity and playing. Like at my club here, we will have had more rounds. We had more rounds in May than in any month in the club's history. And the the tee sheet is full from the first tee, tee time to the very last because there ain't nothing else to do, right? There's, you can, you know, we can't, we're not going to the movies. We're not going to the mall. You know, golf as a socially distancing outdoor sport has brought so many people back to it or to even try it again or people who did play it to play it more. So there's been a certainly a, a silver lining in that regard for golf. Now, the question is what happens from here, right? Does golf continue um, capitalize on this and continue uh, down that path? I think some things at least over here have to change our country club model is is going to have to change a bit because country clubs aside from like the big ones whose names you would know because they host major tournaments are generally sort of struggling as you know a younger generation of people come along who don't want to spend a ton of money for a place for for one golf course or just to say they belong to a club you know that i think with millennials that is kind of less attractive than just sort of having interesting golf experiences and traveling more so I think we're seeing a shift. Uh, there'll be a little bit more of a shift to tra- more golf travel, going to more interesting. Pl- well, once we start traveling again, going to more interesting places, joining clubs that would give you access to multiple different places. It's sort of like the world that I grew up in, where your dad played at the same course every Saturday morning, and then went in and played cards and had his had his drinks and played Wednesday afternoons there with his buddies. And I, I don't know if that model is is going to be as successful sort of going going forward so 
I think our model is going to probably look more like your golf where you have visitor tee times and, and golf is, is less a financial thing. So long way of saying golf needs to become more accessible. Yeah. More access. Yeah. Cause it's so good for physical and mental well-being and of course, we're going to see more of the Brooks and the McElroys with those physiques. That's going to keep on happening, isn't I it? I think for sure. I mean, that and and what what Bryson DeChambeau is doing right now, he could be, I don't know, he could be the best player right now and he's eating, you know, 5,000 calories a day. So how that happens, I don't, I don't know how like seven protein shakes a day makes you a great golfer, but it's like happening and people are going to do that. And so physical conditioning is going to get bigger. Scores are going to get, is going to become a bigger part of the game. Scores will get lower because of that. It'll, I think it's going to continue down the path of, I mean, golf used to be, you know, fairways and greens and now it's, it's bomb and gouge, you know, hit it as hard as you can find it and make putts. That's kind of where golf is, whether that's great or not. I don't know, but it's it's kind of fun and entertaining. It's it's where the Americans struggle though in Versailles. <laughs> For sure, no doubt about it. But come Chicago, could be different. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, the Ryder Cup's interesting. I, I have a good friend Chandler Withington is the head pro at Hazeltine. So when we won there, I say we like I was on the team, but you know, talking about how that course was really set up to the American strengths, and on the last day, how they set all the pins in the middle. And tried to actually make the course kind of easy because they had a lead and the Americans are, again, bombers, super aggressive, where the European players are super precise. And it's like, well, if you just kind of take the punitive aspects out of the golf course, they're not, we're not going to lose that many holes and, and we're going to be in all the matches. And that's kind of how it, how it played out. We'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens at Whistling Straits. Tom, there's a, there's a quote that jumped out to me a couple of days ago when I was just digging for into your research and is a bad day on course really better than a good day? And I, it, it's kind of something I find really interesting. You know, you look at McElroy, didn't quite work out for him on his home course, tried to get back in and make the cut. You see it happening with the best of the best and you see it happening with us going out tomorrow onto a local course and you know maybe dragging a shot off the first tee and then you're trying to recover, but you're still trying to maybe find those couple of shots. What is it about that quote you think that you can give us a little bit of a story around? Well, I think that you learn certainly a lot from one struggles on, you know, your struggles on the golf course. And, and that's, again, that thing that keeps coming, you makes you come back that, that tomorrow is going to be different and, and, and better. Um, I mean, I still, if I have a super day and, go low and I'm, I'm, I'm playing well, that's, that's, that's pretty tough to beat, but there's something about when I'm not hitting it well, that I am fully obsessed with figuring out how to get a ton and I'm back at the driving range. And, you know, I never go back to the range after I've played well. I always go back to the range after I've played, after I've played poorly. It's a maddening thing that, that just keeps pulling you back. And, and that's, and Thank God, because it's given it's it's the game of really of you can't master it, right? You can't figure it out. And it, it tricks you into thinking that you can. So you keep coming back. And, you know, I played with my dad yesterday. He's 86 years old and he's still grinding. You know, he's still he misses a putt. He's still pulling it back, trying to figure out how he missed it. And uh, that is frustrating but it's also really satisfying to have a passion for something that you don't have to give up with age 
or that you know is always going to be just beyond your reach and you're going to keep, you know, you're the greyhound that's just not going to quite catch the rabbit. So you keep running. And Tom, something I've been, I was looking to ask today was you're not only an established golfer, but also an established rider. When you're out on a course, say when you're doing your tour of Ireland or when you were touring Scotland or America this year, was there a different lens that you looked at the courses when you were in your writing sphere, say, compared to when you were competing? Yeah, for sure. And that's a tricky kind of balance to strike because the two mindsets don't suit one another terribly well, right? So if you're playing competitively or you want to play well or you're in a match or you just want to post a good score, your head needs to be really kind of empty, right? Or just focused on the golf or just thinking about, you know, what some maybe a swing thought or something you're trying to accomplish. So you're playing your best when you're, you know, that, that oxymoron of, or, or that contradiction of like where you're not really thinking at all. And, but as a writer, that that's not very helpful if I get off the golf course and I'm like, I don't remember any of that. Um, that's not going to make for great content. So trying to strike that balance of, okay, what's the story of this course? What's the history? What's the architecture? What, what, what are the things that I need to, to write about? What are, what are the, what's the conversation like? What are my playing partners like? So I have to also be kind of hyper aware of all that. So, you know, as I go around, I'll take notes on a scorecard. I always uh, write in a journal every night and try to collect the day's events. I have pretty good recall for conversations and events, at least for 24 hours. So if I can get it all down quickly enough, I don't walk around with a tape recorder while I'm playing, you know, trying to capture things that way. But I do try to get it down pretty quickly um, so that I can remember. But yeah, that's the that was always kind of, I guess, the maybe one of the fatal flaws of trying to play your best competitive golf as a writer, because I'd look at the other players and they're aware of, they're totally in the zone. They're aware of nothing. They don't even see me, you know, whereas my writing, my sensibilities as a writer are to see everything and to, and to wonder about it and to take note of it. And because maybe it's the thing that's going to make that chapter, you know, just that one small detail that I'm going to pick up on. So they're a bit at odds with each other, but, and at the end of the day, I'm a writer and I always side with, 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 uh, you know, looking around and listening and it's the people, you know, really it's that, that, that make the, make golf a story is the people who, with whom you play it. What do you know now in your personal or professional life that maybe you wish you knew a little bit earlier in your career? Probably just that, um, everything was going to be okay. Um, because there's this, the writing life, if you will, is, and I guess that cuts both ways because that that anxiety and that fear of I'm never going to get another assignment again. I'm never going to get another book contract again. You know, all that that paranoia and that insecurity, it takes a bit of a toll on your head. But it's also the thing that probably keeps you trying to get better and, and work really hard. So I, I guess I would probably be able to tell myself, hey, relax a little bit and let it come to you because it is going to come. But there is, uh, as long as you just keep working, keep working, keep working, you know, but because of the times that you spent just worrying about, is anyone going to read this? Is anyone going to care? Is this any good? Am I a fraud? All those things. Those are kind of, it's kind of wasted energy. And I probably wasted too much energy on those concerns. Whereas if you just keep your head down and, and, and keep working, you know, that would have been, you know, to save, save me some, some headaches, I suppose. And I'd probably say too, that I wished 
I mean, now I take sort of full advantage of social media, podcasting, all these new platforms, but I was not totally late to it. But if I was just a couple years earlier, you know, don't we all wish that, yeah, that we were the first person to have a blog or the first person to have a podcast or something like that. But I, I, I mean, I'm well established now, but it took a lot of work and time to, to get uh, in that space. And that really is important to augmenting your audience and, and your, and your presence that helps, it helps the books. So that's probably one thing I would have told myself like, Hey, you know, get on that, all this new media, you know, get with that, pay a little more attention to that. And maybe I resisted it because I write in print. Um, and I wanted to, to, to stick to that. I, I certainly don't resist it anymore. And I think the two can work really well together. And you're still writing in print. Um, you've got a book coming out next year. Excited for this one. I just sent off, you know, the first draft uh, to my editor. So we're in the, we'll be in the editing process soon. It's a course called America. So I did, you know, it started with a course called Ireland and I didn't anticipate doing a trilogy, but that's what it's turned into. So we did a course called Ireland, a course called Scotland, and then a course called America. And the idea with all of them is essentially that I've played these countries as big giant golf courses, right? And tried to play in Ireland, play every Lynx course, Scotland, play every Lynx course. And in America, I did not play every golf course, but I did, <laughs> I did go to all 50 states, played about 300 rounds for the course of eight months. So playing two rounds a day, going, wow. yeah, it's pretty, pretty intense itinerary, meeting people all over the place, uh, going, you know, going from Florida to Alaska to Hawaii to Maine and covering all of America. And the idea being, you know, it's the search for me for the great American golf course, which has two questions in that, you know, what makes a golf course great? I'm definitely interested in that. And then what makes it American? What does American mean in, well, 2019 when I was out there? In case you guys haven't heard, it's a pretty complicated time in, in America. Um, so, well, in the world, really. Um, but certainly here, um, the country is in a, a very, there are interesting, challenging times, you know, without being political. And I wanted to go out and rather than sit on the couch and watch the news and think I understood my country or knew what people in Colorado thought or what people in Maine thought, like, go and see it. Because honestly, I knew Ireland a lot better than I did my own country. You know, I'd been to every county in Ireland. I haven't been to every state in America. So um, it's like, go out and learn about my own country. And so that's what I did. And so it's a story, again, that's about golf, but it's more about people and places and this uh, this big country. What was the best memory you have from that, be it a shot on course or perhaps something you're taking from it off course? Yeah. Oh, there's so many. I mean, I, it, it comes down to definitely... Um, friend the friendships the the people and the, the community that rallied around and that I, that I became something of like a a bit of a forest gump like running along and then first I'm running alone and then by the end of the trip I've got hundreds of people with me you know and and that's that was really the feeling of you know starting off on this adventure and and thanks to social media having people follow and and know where I am and then having them show up and you know, going and going to a public course in Los Angeles, and have thirty strangers come out to play golf with me, and and not just with me, but with each other too. 
that was the most rewarding thing. It wasn't about like my ego of like, Ooh, look, people know where I am or they want to play golf with me. That's not interesting to me. And that also wasn't the case. The case was that people wanted to get together with other like-minded golfers or other like-minded people. And so this reinforcement of the strength of our community in golf and on our community in America, that when we get away from all the, from political parties or our all divisions and on a one-on-one basis, people generally get along. Of course, on the news, you find, you'll, you'll see every instance of when we didn't, but I found that people did get along and liked meeting each other and liked connecting. And, you know, it was just awesome. Like being in New York, teeing it up with like this financial banker who was a dub by the way, uh, living in New York and then being joined by two guys from the Bronx and them and, and just having an awesome, awesome time. And then hearing a month later that they, the three of those, those three guys were still playing golf together like that the next weekend, you know? And, and that's like, that's golf. That's a gift that golf gives us. And so those are the memories, the community and the friendships that, that definitely made it worthwhile. And then the things that I'm was most, most appreciated about it. Thanks for that, Tom. And um, now we're, we're just winding down towards the end. Just a couple more light questions for you. The ideal four ball, you're, you're first up at tee, but who's the three, three other players you'd like to go around on your ideal yeah. round with? All right. Well, you got to throw dad in there, getting mm-hmm. up in years, but he's still hitting it. And so I'd put dad in. Do they have to be living? I guess we'll go with living. I'd put Rory in there, to be honest. I really appreciate just to watch him swing which is awesome. And I just really appreciate how he's taken up. He's a genuine, he just seems to me like a genuine guy and he's not afraid to speak and he's not worried about what everyone's going to think or his sponsors dollars all the time. I don't know if he was always that way, but he's just kind of found his voice, I think in golf. And I just, I, you know, I struggle sometimes to find golfers to cheer for because maybe we know too much about them. And, uh, we know a lot about Rory and he just seems like a, a great dude. So yeah, I'd like to play with Rory. Yeah. We'll put Bill Murray in there. Um, <laughs> who, uh, for the crack and he's a great, we actually part in part of the America book. I got to spend a weekend with him and his brother, Brian. And, um, if I could have a fifth, you know, put Brian in there too. So they're, they're just tremendous, good, genuine people and funny, but just, um, just a kind of a, just a fun dude to be around. So that, yeah, that'd be good for some. And then next time we're getting back to it, we're getting back to golf. When it comes to Augusta again, who's going home wearing the green jacket? Ah, let's see. <laughs> Dude, Bryson. <laughs> Bryson's going to win the green jacket. And it's going to have to be double XL. <laughs> I love it when they won't be able to find one that fits. Dude, but I mean, his game is like super solid. Distance-wise, you know, Augusta's definitely become a big hitter's golf course. He's going to be fine with that. There's nothing in his game that he doesn't do well enough. And yeah, I could see that. We're going to buy shares and protein shakes. I know. (laughs) Before last question, Europe or US if Whistling Straits goes ahead? Ooh. So Speaking to two Europeans. Well, here's the thing. (laughs) And I'm loathe to admit it on on a podcast, but... Maybe it's all my my love of Irish and Scottish golf and all my time over. I, I don't know, but I like. There's a part of me that's that secretly roots for for Europe, but don't tell anyone. Okay. Yeah, just shush. We won't know anyone listening. Don't tell anyone either. Um, yeah, just because and and I just generally find their players to be more likable. Like there's some guys on the American team that I wouldn't be um, 
the biggest fan of. And I think just the, I, I like that the European team generally has good esprit de corps, the way they come together and seem to kind of like overachieve. And just in terms of like, you know, if you went by world rankings or something. So, and and typically for that reason would be like an underdog. So I wouldn't be someone watching who's devastated if the US doesn't win win the cup. Now, who's going to win? Uh, Europe will win. I think they will. And I think with whistling straights will suit them well. With the precision, it will require um, that they're likely, you know, the, the, the way the wind is going to play and, and all that. There's nothing in that golf course where you would say advantage um, America. So, Tom Coyne, thank you very much for um, joining Kiran and I today. Really enjoyed speaking to you. Everyone that comes onto this podcast, we always ask a simple closing question. And that is, what does high performance mean to you? High performance to me means, for me, it's it's probably a daily thing where I've gotten the most out of my day, where at the end of the day, it doesn't mean that I'm physically exhausted, but where at the end of the day, I feel full. Where, And, and so that doesn't necessarily mean that I've shot 64 or that I've written a thousand pages. Maybe it's a combination of the two, but where I have gotten the most out of my day. And as I reflect upon my day that I feel genuinely satisfied. I think that that for me is performing at a high level. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us. Enjoy your round tomorrow. Thank you. And uh, stay fit, stay healthy. And we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks lads. We'll see you in Ireland soon. I hope. See you Tom. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.